0: Welcome to Murder Minute, on today's episode, the Glamour Girl Killer. But first, your true crime headlines. An Austin, Texas woman who went missing along with her infant daughter earlier this month has been found dead near Houston, and police believe that a friend of the victim's is responsible for her death. Authorities in Harris County confirmed that the body of 33-year-old Heidi Broussard was found in the trunk of a vehicle in Houston. A baby believed to be Broussard's infant daughter was found alive and in good condition. The three-week-old infant is in the care of Child Protective Services, and DNA tests are underway to confirm the baby's identity. Police have arrested 33-year-old Megan Muska who is described as a close friend of Broussard's. Muska is believed to have been plotting to take Broussard's baby since before the child's birth and had been pretending to be pregnant at the same time as Broussard. Police have charged her with kidnapping and evidence tampering and murder charges are expected to follow. Authorities believe that she may have had help murdering Broussard and their investigation continues. With the help of a genealogy company, Parabon NanoLabs, police in Florida have identified a suspect in the 38-year-old cold case murder. 58-year-old Joseph Clinton Mills of Lakeland, Florida, was arrested for the 1981 rape and murder of Linda Patterson Slayton. The 31-year-old single mother was found sexually assaulted and strangled with a coat hanger in her bed. Her sons, then aged 15 and 12, were asleep at the time of her murder. There was no sign of a struggle, but a screen had been removed from a window in her bedroom. At the time of her murder, Joseph Mills was 20 years old and a coach on her son's football team. He told police that he had given Timothy Slayton a ride home from practice on the evening before Linda Slayton's murder, but denied having entered their apartment. Police were able to collect physical evidence at the time of her death, but were not able to match it to a suspect. Last year, investigators turned to Parabon NanoLabs, the company whose genealogy techniques have assisted in the resolution of dozens of high-profile cold cases. Parabon was able to identify Mills as a possible suspect in the case, and subsequent investigation by detectives confirmed their findings. Mills has been charged with first-degree murder sexual battery, and burglary with assault and battery. His arraignment is scheduled for January 21st. The family of a developmentally disabled man who was shot and killed by an off-duty police officer inside a Costco store in June has filed a federal civil rights lawsuit against the officer. 32-year-old Kenneth French was shopping with his parents at the warehouse store in Corona, California, when an altercation took place between the man and off-duty LAPD officer Salvador Sanchez, who shot French and both of his parents. French was killed, and his parents Russell and Paula French were both hospitalized with serious injuries. Lawyers for the French family say that if anyone other than a police officer had opened fire inside of a Costco, they would have been charged with a crime, and they seek to hold officers to a higher standard, not a lower one. The civil suit seeks unspecified compensatory and punitive damages for what the French family attorney calls violations of law in connection with an unjustified shooting. A grand jury declined to bring charges against Sanchez for the incident, and he is on home duty while the LAPD conducts their own internal investigation. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the glamour girl killer. But first, a quick break. True crime is my passion, but even I need the occasional break. So when I feel like I need a mental palate cleanser, my go-to refresher is Best Fiends. Best Fiends has challenging puzzles, and it's a casual game anyone can play, but it's made for adults. You can spend as much or as little time as you like in the game and it's easy. I'm on level 54. My favorite bug that I've collected, his name's Gene, he's a centipede. Best Fiends is a visually stunning puzzler app that takes the mobile game experience to the next level. All the good guys are bugs and the bad guys are slugs. Download the app free now. Build your team of cute characters, level them up, discover their special powers, and defeat the slugs. Join me and over 100 million people who have already downloaded this top-rated puzzle adventure. With more than 3,000 levels, you'll never run out of fiendish fun. And Best Fiends updates the game monthly with new levels and events so it never gets old. Whether I'm in the car, on the plane, procrastinating, or trying to shake off a bad day, Best Fiends is my must-play. Download the game and join the adventure today. Get Best Fiends now. That's friends without the R. Best Fiends. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the story of Harvey Gladman also known as the Glamour Girl Slayer. Harvey Gladman was born on December 10, 1927, in the Bronx in New York, to Ophelia and Albert Gladman, a Jewish couple. From an early age, Harvey's parents noticed signs of sadomasochistic sexual tendencies. By the age of four, Harvey began tying a string around his penis. He would then close the loose end in a drawer and lean back against the string. Before long, Harvey's favorite pastime became tying a rope around his neck, looping the free end over a pipe or a rafter, and yanking the rope with one hand while masturbating with the other, a practice now known as as autoerotic asphyxiation. In 1938, the family moved to Denver, Colorado, and Harvey entered junior high school. The other children bullied Harvey for his acne, buck teeth, and big ears. And Harvey developed a fear of the girls, who made him feel inadequate. At age 12, Harvey's mother noticed that Harvey had a red, swollen neck. It was rope burned. Harvey told her that he had been in the bathtub, placed a rope around his neck, ran it through the tub drain, and pulled it tight against his neck, achieving sexual pleasure from this act. Harvey's father warned him that masturbation caused acne and thought his son was queer. Harvey's mother took him to the family physician, who told her that Harvey would grow out of it. It seems like I always had a piece of rope in my hands when I was a kid. Harvey would later tell police. I guess I was just kind of fascinated by rope. In high school, Harvey Gladman was an above average student, a Boy Scout, involved in music photography, and had a job as a delivery boy. But Harvey's career as a criminal had already begun, and his sadomasochistic tendencies wouldn't be limited to self-abuse for much longer. Harvey began breaking and entering into the private residences of women, taking anything he could find. From one of the homes, Harvey stole a handgun. This changed everything. Soon, Harvey was stalking women, burglarizing them and sexually assaulting them at gunpoint. On May 18, 1945, 17-year-old Harvey Glattman was arrested when police caught him in the act of breaking into the apartment of Elma Hammam through a window. In his pockets, they found rope and a pistol. Under interrogation, Harvey confessed to a string of burglaries, leaving out the sexual assaults. And on May 21, 1945, Harvey Glattman was charged with first-degree robbery. His parents posted his bail. Less than a month later, Harvey abducted Noreen Laurel from her neighborhood Tied her up, tied her up, and drove her out of town to Sunshine Canyon. Harvey molested the woman, but didn't rape her. Then, he drove her home. Noreen Laurel went straight to the police, where she was shown a series of mugshots and identified 17-year-old Harvey Gladman. He was arrested again. But this time, during his incarceration, a prison psychiatrist, Dr. Hilton, diagnosed Harvey as schizophrenic, or at the time, more commonly called split personality. Dr. Hilton described Harvey as sullen, morose, and disrespectful, and observed that Harvey seemed determined that everyone was against him. Despite this, Harvey managed to graduate from high school in the top 15% of his class. But by November of 1945, Harvey was arrested again and pled guilty to first degree robbery, just in time to spend his 18th birthday in jail. This time, he was diagnosed as having psychoneurosis compulsive or anxiety type with depression and was found not to have signs of schizophrenia. After his release, an undeterred Harvey Glattman continued to rob and sexually assault women. In August of 1946, Harvey attacked Thomas Starrow and Doris Thorne. He forced them at gunpoint into some trees and took Thomas's wallet. Harvey then tied him up and molested Doris Thorne threatening to kill her what they didn't know was that Harvey was merely armed with a cap gun Harvey then made his way to Albany where he stalked a nurse Florence Hayden he attempted to sexually assault her but she escaped Harvey then tried to attack Evelyn Burge and Beverly Goldston they also escaped and reported the attack to the Albany Punit, and reported the attack to the Albany Police Department. Two days later, Harvey Glattman was again in custody and again confessed. In October of 1956, Harvey Glattman was convicted of sexual assault. He pleaded guilty and, in exchange, received a reduced sentence five to ten years at the Elmira Reformatory. Two years later, in 1948, Dr. Ralph Ryancull diagnosed 20-year-old Harvey Gladman with psychopathic personality, schizophrenic type, having sexually perverted impulses as the basis of criminality. Harvey was transferred to Sing Sing, to complete his prison term under maximum security. But just one year later, Harvey was paroled. They called him a model prisoner with a high IQ and released him based on their observation that he demonstrated ability and eagerness in his prison duties and responded positively to medical exams. Under the conditions of his parole, Harvey Glattman returned to the care of his mother in Denver, Colorado. He got a full-time job and was under court observation for the next four and a half years. Harvey appeared to stay in compliance with his parole. He laid low and lived with his parents in Colorado for the next several years, seemingly without incident. But in January of 1957, now 29-year-old Harvey Glattman decided to move to Los Angeles. There, he found work as a television repairman and picked up an old hobby from high school, photography. In August of 1957, Harvey approached 19-year-old model Judy Ann Dahl. Judy was engaged in a protractive, expensive custody battle with her ex-husband over their 14-month-old daughter. So when a man calling himself Johnny Glynn called offering $50 to pose for the cover of a pulp novel, equivalent to around $460 today, Judy agreed to do the photo shoot that afternoon. He told her to wear a tight skirt, and sweater. Harvey picked up Judy at her apartment and told her that he would take her to his studio. Harvey Gladman took Judy Dole back to his apartment, where he tied her up under the pretense of shooting bondage-style photos for the cover. Judy complied without hesitation. Harvey or Johnny may have seemed amateurish, but Judy was no stranger to being tied up. She was experienced in these types of shoots, as film noir-type true crime magazines were quite popular at the time, and she had posed in bondage before. But then, the photo shoot took a turn when Harvey pulled out a 32 Browning automatic and began taking photos of Judy in bondage with the gun. When Harvey was done snapping pictures, he didn't untie Judy. He raped her at gunpoint, losing his virginity to her at the age of 29. He then forced her to cuddle with him while he watched television. Harvey then drove Judy out to the desert, raped her again, wrapped a rope around her neck, strangled her to death, and photographed her body. By November, Harvey decided to leave Los Angeles and returned to Colorado. He told his mother that he had lost his job, and his mother didn't ask questions. Perhaps Harvey did lose his job, or perhaps he fled California for fear of being caught. Whatever his reasons, Harvey didn't remain in Colorado for very long. A few months later, in early 1958, Harvey Gladman returned to Los Angeles, rented a bungalow, and picked up where he left off, taking women into the desert Tying them up, raping them, photographing them, and strangling them to death. Each in the same manner as Judy Dull. I would make them kneel down. With every one it was the same, Harvey later told police. With the gun on them I would tie this five-foot piece of rope around their ankles. Then I would loop it up around their neck then I would stand there and keep pulling until they quit struggling. In March of 1958, Harvey Glattman found his next victim in 24-year-old divorcee and a model, Shirley Bridgeford. This time, he met Shirley through a Lonely Hearts ad, contacting her under the name George Williams. Harvey picked up Shirley from her apartment the following Saturday night, under the pretense of taking her out on a date. Harvey later told police that his purpose was to have sexual intercourse with her, either with consent or by force, and that he was prepared to kill her to avoid arrest if he had to use force. After driving south for a couple of hours, Harvey pulled over and parked off the highway. He tried to persuade Shirley to have sex with him. When she refused, he showed her his gun and told her that he wouldn't use it as long as she obeyed him. Shirley submitted to him, and while they were still parked, Harvey decided that he would have to kill her for his own safety. He then drove southeast to a desert area in San Diego County, where they stopped until the sun came up. Harvey decided to kill Shirley in the same way that he had previously murdered Judy Dull. He told Shirley that he wanted to take some pictures of her and tied Shirley's hands and feet. After taking several pictures of her, he fastened a rope to the cord around her ankles, pulled it so as to bend her knees, put his knee into the small of her back, looped the rope twice around her neck, and pulled as hard as he could for several minutes until he was satisfied that she was dead. As Harvey drove back to Los Angeles, he threw out Shirley's purse and its contents except for about 30 cents in change, which he kept. A few months later, in July of 1958, Harvey Glattman found his third victim the same way he found his first. Through a newspaper advertisement stating that 24-year-old Ruth Mercado was available for employment as a model. When he arrived at her place for the planned photo shoot, he learned that she was feeling too ill to proceed. Undeterred, Harvey returned to her house later that evening. When Ruth let him into her apartment, Harvey took a gun from his pocket and forced her into her bedroom, where he tied her hands and ankles and gagged her. He then investigated to see how the apartment was laid out to make sure there was a back door in the event that he had to leave quickly. When he returned, he told her that he was going to untie her and have sex with her. And he warned her not to do anything foolish. When Harvey was satisfied, he asked Ruth if she had any money she showed him where she had some cash hidden, and Harvey pocketed 20 or $25. Around midnight, he tied Ruth's hands behind her back, put a coat over her shoulders to hide her hands and arms, and guided her to his car. He then drove her southeast from Los Angeles, like the others, toward the desert in San Diego County. She was one I really liked, so I told her we were going out to a deserted spot where we wouldn't be bothered while I took more pictures." Harvey explained. We drove out to Escondido and spent most of the day out in the desert. Harvey took five or six pictures of Ruth with her hands and feet tied in poses similar to those in the pictures he had previously taken of Shirley. I took a lot more pictures and tried and tried to figure out how to keep from killing her, but I couldn't come up with any answer. Harvey decided that it was too risky to take Ruth back to Los Angeles. After the sun went down, for the asserted purpose of taking some flash photos, Harvey made Ruth pose again in the dark with her hands and feet tied. Like Shirley and Judy before her, Harvey tied a piece of rope from her ankles to bend her legs back, put his knee in the small of her back, looped the rope twice around her neck, and pulled as hard as he could for five minutes. As he drove back to Los Angeles, Harvey disposed of most of Ruth's belongings at various places along the highway, but this time, Along with the $10 that was in her purse, Harvey kept some souvenirs. Ruth's wallet with her identification, her wristwatch, and some articles of clothing. On October 27th, 1958, Harvey Glattman met his final victim, 28-year-old Lorraine Vigil. Lorraine had just registered with a modeling agency when she was contacted by Harvey for what would have been her first photo shoot. Lorraine got in the car with him and became suspicious when he started driving in the opposite direction of Hollywood. I did not become alarmed, however, until we entered the Santa Ana freeway and he began driving at a tremendous speed He wouldn't answer my questions or even look at me, she later told police. Then Harvey claimed that his car had a flat tire and pulled over to the side of the road. Once the car was parked, Harvey pulled his gun on Lorraine and tried to tie her up. But Lorraine fought. She grabbed the gun by the muzzle and tried to wrestle it from Harvey. Harvey desperately tried to convince her that if she let it go, he would not kill her. But Lorraine kept fighting. As they struggled, the gun discharged, firing a bullet that passed through Lorraine's skirt, grazing her thigh. Lorraine bit Harvey's hand, took the gun, and kicked the car door open. Lorraine Vigil pointed the gun at Harvey Glattman and held it there until a passing patrolman noticed the struggle and pulled over just in time. Lorraine Vigil survived and Harvey Glattman was arrested. Once at the station, Harvey quickly confessed and admitted to every detail of his crimes. Following his arrest and confession, Harvey took police officers to the locations where he had murdered Shirley and Ruth and led the officers to their remains. An officer then searched Harvey's apartment and found a metal toolbox containing Ruth's wallet, some of her clothing, and all of the photographs that Harvey had taken of his victims instead of being celebrated for her courage and her help in capturing a serial killer lorraine vigil was fired from her job as a result of her notoriety in a case of classic victim blaming reports circulated that lorraine knew that harvey glattman was an ex-con when she accepted the modeling job and put herself in harm's way "'I didn't know he was an ex-convict,' she told reporters. "'If I had, I certainly wouldn't have agreed to pose for him.'" Police hoped that they might connect some of their unsolved homicides of women to Harvey Glattman, but after hooking him up to a polygraph and hours of questioning, they were disappointed. "'There is nothing to indicate that Glattman is connected with any other crimes,' at this time. Lieutenant Herman Zander said, On December 15th, 1958, against the wishes of his mother and the advice of his attorney, who both wanted him to plead insanity, Harvey Glatman entered a plea of guilty and argued for his own execution. I think, he said, The guilty plea was proper. I don't think these people really believe I am or was insane. This is just a delaying maneuver. My actions justify my previous plea. I would rather be executed than spend the rest of my life behind bars. Judge John A. Hewicker was stunned. Do you realize that you are likely to be sentenced to death? You may think that's what you want now. But as the time approaches, you may think differently. But Harvey made no attempt to escape execution. On December 17th, 1958, the judge found 31-year-old Harvey Gladman guilty and sentenced him to death. On September 18, 1959, Harvey Glattman was killed in the gas chamber at San Quentin State Prison. And on September 18, 1959, Harvey Glattman was executed in the gas chamber at San Quentin State Prison. It took 12 minutes for him to die. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.